The text that we'll focus on this morning is from the same chapter that we read, Micah 7, and especially the verses 18 through 20. So let's read those verses also together before the proclamation of his word. So Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. There we read, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity, and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us, and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob, and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old." Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the sermon that I've prepared for this morning is the last one in a very short series on the book of Micah that I had the privilege of working on this summer. A few weeks ago, you would have heard a sermon on Micah 4, and Micah is an incredibly rich book, especially for being such a small book. And this chapter, or rather this this book, is only some seven or eight pages long, But it's a summary collection of all the key moments in Micah's prophetic ministry. And his ministry would have lasted around 40 years. So all of that ministry is compressed into these seven or eight pages. There are a lot of other beautiful passages that we could have focused on this morning instead. Chapter 5 is a beautiful prophecy about the coming of a shepherd that would be born in Bethlehem who would lead God's people back to him. Chapter 6, it's a very practical chapter that tells us what God requires of us in very easy, simple terms. But there are a couple reasons why I chose to focus on chapter 7. First, it was written as a conclusion to the book, so it gives a dramatic overview of Micah's prophecy, and it brings it to a conclusion. But the second reason is what I really hope to get across this morning— And the second reason is this, Micah 7 takes us from a consideration of all that has come before and all that has been said in Micah's prophecy to a deep and profound realization of God's glory. And my hope is that that is where it will take us this morning also, that we would be able to conclude a very short series of two sermons with that same sense of awe and amazement that Micah also felt after he considered God's glorious promises. So the theme for this morning's sermon is, The most glorious of Yahweh's victories is over our sin. That theme that comes from the last three verses of our chapter, which we read together, verses 18 to 20. But to get there, we need to work through the whole chapter Verses 1 to 6, they focus on the dismal state of Yahweh's people, and that will be our first point, though it will be very brief. Then verses 7 to 17, consider the hope that comes from Yahweh's promises, that's our second point, and my hope is to move as quickly through those first two points to our third point, which is a profound recognition of Yahweh's glory, that comes from verses 18 to 20. And that's where hopefully we'll spend most of our time this morning. The first verses of chapter 7, they follow from the end of chapter 6, 
which again talks about the selfishness and the corruption in Israel, and especially among the city officials and the leaders, but also among the whole population. Chapter 7 takes us from that scene, that dismal, terrible scene, and considers it from the perspective of the kingdom of God, represented by the city of of Jerusalem. So the I, in verse 1, for I am like, and so forth, that I, and in the rest of the chapter, is actually the city of Jerusalem speaking, and taking on, as as it were, its own voice. In the book of Micah, it's full of these dramatic dialogues where beings or cities are, are personified and made to speak. And so now he takes on the imaginary voice of the city itself representing the kingdom of God. And the city looks at herself and she says, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. She compares herself to a vineyard that's been harvested and already gleaned. Now the harvesters, they would come in and they would take all the grapes they could. But the law in Israel was that they could only ever harvest once. And whatever was left would be left for the poor. And the poor would come in and they would pick up everything that was left behind. Every last budding grape or fig somewhere that the harvesters missed. And after they were through, a vineyard was totally gleaned. It was completely cleaned out. There wouldn't be a single grape left, or you could take the image of an orchard. There wouldn't be a single budding fig left in some corner of some tree. It's been totally cleaned out, and there's just thorns and stubble baking under the late summer sun. Totally dry. And the city says, that's what it's like looking for righteous people inside me. The faithful man, verse 2, has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. There is, throughout the kingdom, no sign at all of the Spirit at work, giving life and giving joy, just selfish people, all of them, every one, dead in their sins, dry stubble, and no fruit at all. It's always so delightful and refreshing to meet another believer, someone else who is genuinely a believer in Christ, who is sincere, but the city says there's none to be found. Verse 4 says that the best of them is like a briar, the most upright, sharper than a thorn hedge. You try and come close, and you only get hurt. So the city laments the sad state of affairs that she's found herself in. Where are all the righteous people? Why is God's kingdom so dry and so lifeless? How did things end up this way? And you can see this passage is so timely here in North America also, isn't it? Where is the church that was once so alive in this country, so much so that the words of Scripture are still engraved on the Parliament building? How did it happen that now, everywhere we turn, there's only lifeless people, people with no room in their heart at all for God? How could it happen? Business has become vicious. Everything is about me and the bottom line. Relationships are so broken these days. And there's so much loneliness and emptiness. A generation ago, nobody knew what a school shooting was. And now it's in the headlines every month or every other month. How did we become so selfish? 
Where is the church in all of this? Where did she go? And why is the North American church today still moving ever further and further away from the love of God and instead, instead of repenting and drawing near to Him? And yet that problem in Micah's day also, that was the entire reason why God raised up Micah as a prophet. Every chapter in the book of Micah addresses a different aspect of that problem. And as you read Micah, you realize that yes, God will do something about this dry and lifeless situation. It cannot stay the way it is. And that's what Micah then remembers in verses 7 through 17. So Micah expresses his confidence that things will not stay the way they are. Verse 7, he says, Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Then verses 8 through 20, they're actually written in the form of a liturgical hymn, and they were sung by the believers for many centuries in anticipation of their fulfillment. And verses 8 through 20 are essentially a summary of everything that has come before in the book of Micah. All of the prophecies that Yahweh delivered through Micah. And in them, Micah speaks using still the imaginary voice of the city of Jerusalem, representing the kingdom of God. And he shows us the reaction of the believers to God's promises in the rest of the book of Micah. And the reaction is this, verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. This is the city speaking. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. It may be that there is hardly any light left in the kingdom. When the people of God are not shining like a light in the darkness, the way they should be, when they themselves have no light inside of them. And then the city remembers, the Lord will still be a light We long to see that light shining in our church. But even when we don't, we have to remember we always have the light of the Lord our God. The light of the scriptures that he's given us too. No amount of spiritual decay in any church can dim that hope for the true believer. And for the church around the world, no amount of spiritual decay in North America or in Europe or anywhere else, will take away that hope of faithful Christians everywhere throughout the world. We we still remain scattered throughout the world, and the prayers of believers everywhere else are also lifted up by that light. It cannot be taken away because our hope is not in the church. As much as we love the church, our hope is in the God of the church. Our hope is in God no matter what happens to the church. So the city of God trusts in verse 8, when I fall, I know I will arise. And that's exactly what happened so many times in history. You can think of the Reformation, when after years of spiritual decay under the papacy, the remnant of believers, they rose up and the light of the gospel again shone clear across Europe and out to the Americas. And that's what happened, you may think of the Netherlands a century ago, after years of decadence and decay, when our spiritual forefathers rose up from the darkness, began preaching that pure gospel and spreading the pure light of the scriptures again, beginning a spiritual revival that would send shockwaves out to the country and out to the rest of the world. Believers may always trust that when God's church and God's kingdom grow dim, they will shine again. Even in times of spiritual darkness, 
Because even when we are unfaithful, he is still faithful. He will not abandon his church, even when she so often forsakes him. And so the city confesses in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he pleads my cause and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then verse 11 brings us back to that great promise that we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 4. That the kingdom of God would go out to the furthest reaches of the earth and gather all who love the Lord as we do. In that day, says verse 11, when your walls are built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Yahweh will gather into his kingdom all those who love him from the ends of the earth, from the territory of the enemy, from the kingdom of Satan. And don't miss the fact, brothers and sisters, that's us that our text is speaking about. We are the ones who were brought out of the nations and gathered into God's kingdom who were once the people of Israel. And yet, for reasons that we cannot fathom, for no reason but the sovereign choice of God, there are also many who are left behind in the kingdom of Satan who continue to walk in those same sins that we once walked in, and they will be wiped out. God will deal with injustice. Verse 13 says, The earth will be desolate because of those who dwell in it for the fruit of their deeds. Then verse 14 begins to reflect on the promises in chapter 5 of a coming shepherd. And this will be the shepherd who will gather us, the church, the wayward sheep, and lead us back to our God. This will be the shepherd who will open the way back to the green pastures, to the glorious presence of our God. He will lead us in God's ways, even though we by nature, like sheep, wouldn't have wanted to be led that way. And he will show us the joy of walking in God's commands. And yet, this same shepherd, as you read in chapter 5, will also shepherd the nations with a sword, with a rod of iron. And he will do so for the same sins that we ourselves once walked in. And that we ourselves would still love if it wasn't for his grace. So that summary of the chapter brings us to verses 18 through 20, where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. These verses, they begin this most glorious conclusion to Yahweh's promises and to all that has come before in the book of Micah. They're a response to everything that has been said to all of these promises. Verses 18 to 20 are also based on the song of Moses, which he sang as the Israelites came out of Egypt out of slavery and out of the reach of Pharaoh's army. At that time, as they escaped through the Red Sea, the Lord covered the army of Pharaoh with the Red Sea. And at that time, Moses sang, and here I quote from Exodus 15, this is Moses' song. He said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. That's Pharaoh's army he's referring to. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. That was Moses' song. 
And now Micah, after seeing so many glorious promises from God, and after seeing God's incredible love and patience with his people, he asks the same question as Moses, who is a God like you? And yet there's something profoundly different about Micah's song in contrast with Moses' song. Again, Moses asked, who is like you, glorious in in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And then he begins to detail Yahweh's victories against Pharaoh and against his army and against the nations. And we might expect Micah to do something similar, to say, who is a God like you who conquers the nations, who redeems your people from their hand, something like that. And after all, Yahweh did promise to do all of that. And that's how Moses had responded. But Micah sees Yahweh's glory in something totally different than Moses saw it. Micah is totally dumbfounded by what God has revealed. And instead he asks, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your heritage? Why that surprising change, that difference between Micah's song and Moses' song? Well, it's because Micah has learned something from all that has happened before in all that Yahweh has revealed to him. He's learned something from witnessing that decadent, dissolute, degenerate state of his people, the state of morality in God's kingdom, and just the sheer amount of wickedness and depravity that existed there and that existed in his own heart. What has he learned? Well, he's learned that the true enemy of God's kingdom is not out there. It's not Pharaoh and his army. It's not the Assyrians and their armies. It's in himself. It's in his own heart and in the hearts of the rest of God's people. That's the real enemy of God's people. When he saw what Yahweh would do to the kingdom, when he realized that Yahweh would send the kingdom into exile for their own sake, for their own purification, suddenly he realizes, I never deserved to be a part of Yahweh's kingdom. There is no reason why so many others are going to be expelled forever and trampled under God's armies. They will be expelled from this kingdom and destroyed under Yahweh's feet because of their wickedness. And yet I, I will still be a member of God's kingdom All this time, I was praying for God to vanquish his enemies, and I never realized I was one of them. You see this so many times in the prophecies that God gives to Micah. God's kingdom is in the hearts of his people, and God's enemy is in the hearts of his people. His kingdom exists wherever they submit to him, and his enemy, the enemy that God wages war against, is sin the sin which exists in the hearts of every one of us. It's a lesson that we too need to learn. God's enemies are not only members of ISIS beheading believers. God's enemies are not only communist leaders in China or North Korea. God's enemies are not only abortionists or homosexual activists pursuing us, suing our bakeries and photographers. He hates their sin, yes, Because he hates all sin. The enemy of God's kingdom, the anti-kingdom, if you will, that's sin and includes the sin in my own heart. Those who love sin, and that includes all of us, and all too often, 
you and I, they do not belong in that kingdom. They're opposed to that kingdom. When we discover this and when that knowledge really enters our heart and the way we think, then our reaction becomes like Micah's. Who? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Let's not forget that mercy, that forgiveness, by God's sovereign choice, that only extends to the remnant, the remnant of the people. You see that in verse 18, who passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. The same is true for what follows. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. For whom? For the remnant. Why, what do we have that the rest of them that aren't the remnant, what do we have that they didn't have and God will destroy them for not having? That any of us at all who were as much enemies of God's kingdom as any black-robed terrorist in the hands of ISIS, that any of us at all are shown mercy by God as part of that remnant, that should astound us. And yet he does forgive us. You see that in verse 19. He will again have compassion on us, and he will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We can notice Micah is again using the same language as Moses did regarding Pharaoh and his army being cast into the depths of the sea. And yet this time, it's not Pharaoh and his army being cast there. It's our sins and our iniquities. Now some of us might be surprised by this battle language. After all, is it really a victorious battle to cast our sins into the depths of the sea? How hard is it for God to forgive Is this really a more amazing victory than what God accomplished at the Red Sea? Well, it is. And to think otherwise is to treat sin as if it were not real. As if God could just make it go away by wishing it away as quickly as we would like him to forget about it. But sin doesn't simply go away. Once it's there, it's there. Those of us who have sinned against others, we know that. So badly we wish that we could undo what was done, but we can't. Yes, relationships can over years and years be restored, but not the smallest sin can ever be undone. Once done, it is done. And yet Micah, who knows this, has now seen what God would do in the coming years, and part of that is that he will be victorious over the sins of his people. Their hearts and their histories are stained with sin in a way that you would think could never ever be undone. And yet God, nevertheless, the holy God, has compassion on them. Verse 19 again, He will have compassion on us. You will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The distance that our sins place between us and our God would seem to us so great that anyone who looks at himself honestly would say, there is no way that that distance can ever be overcome, that we could ever be restored to the holy God. Why should a holy God, so deeply and so repeatedly offended by our sins, why would he still have any interest at all in loving a people like us, in being reconciled to sinners like us? 
And yet he does. And he deals with those sins totally. He treads them underfoot. He casts them into the depths of the sea. You could use the words of Psalm 103. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The kind of love and the kind of commitment that it takes to even desire that kind of reconciliation, much more carry it out. That love demands a power that is beyond any other power, that makes any other achievement pale in comparison. That's why Paul also refers to the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. When God in Christ took our sins on himself on the bloody cross and exchanged our corruption for his righteousness, he reconciled us to himself and he restored that relationship and achieved what we never should have expected to be possible. No victory will ever compare with that one against our sin. That love, it's fueled by God's faithfulness, his commitment to promises made long ago. And we can see that in verse 20. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Even after his people had long, long forgotten about him, God did not forget about his people or his promises to them. He, continued, he promised Abraham that he would bless his descendants, and that's not just his physical descendants, but also all who follow in his faith, his path of faith. And thousands of years later, in Micah's day, God was still faithful to preserve that remnant, even though there was so much sin in his kingdom even though there was so much sin, even in the hearts of those who believed. God continues to love, continues to forgive, continues to preserve that remnant, and to be gracious to those who trust in him as Abraham trusted in him. So when Micah looks honestly at the decay that exists in Yahweh's kingdom and the wickedness that lives, not just in their hearts, but in his own heart, in the hearts of every one of God's people, then he finally comes to understand that Yahweh's enemy was not out there. It was in his own heart and in the hearts of God's people. And then when he sees what God would do, how God would restore that kingdom, how he would show mercy to evildoers like himself, then he is just left open-mouthed and astonished at God's ways. And we should be too. Recognizing this as God's ultimate victory should absolutely change us. It should make every difference in our relationship with God. What is my only comfort, as we confess in Lord's Day 1? Is it that God will provide for me in difficult times? He will, but it's not that. Is it that God will give me victory against my earthly enemies? He may, but it's not that. That's not my most cherished comfort. My only comfort in life and death is that I belong to my faithful Savior who has paid for my sin and sets me free from the power of the devil. No matter what happens in this life, I have every reason to leap for joy because God has reconciled me to him and somehow overcome my sin that stood against me. He does all of this for his own glory and so this book rightly ends with his glory And let us also give him thanks and give him the glory. 
We were once enemies of God's kingdom by virtue of our own sin which opposed his kingdom. But he is victorious, gloriously victorious over against our sin. And now we find ourselves by his grace as living members of his kingdom, sanctified and made righteous by the blood of Christ. What a reason to rejoice and to love our faithful God. And what a reason also to hate the sin that still remains in us and to fight against it as our greatest and most vile enemy. How many millions of people will fail to enter God's kingdom because of their sin and will face his wrath and his judgment? Since God has been pleased to preserve us as a remnant, though we had the same unworthiness and the same sin, since he is pleased to preserve us, Let us do everything we can to fight his and our enemy on this earth, wherever we have jurisdiction, in our hearts and in our homes. And let us also renew our love for our human earthly enemies, because we know that the true enemy is not them, but their sin and our sin. Perhaps there are some among them, among those members of ISIS or those abortionists or those homosexual activists, perhaps there are some among them whom God has chosen to love and forgive and preserve as part of that remnant and welcome into his kingdom. Even if they sue our bakeries or drag us to court, even if the weight of our own country falls against us and not on our side, as the weight of the Assyrian army fell against God's remnant, it is sin that is the enemy. And that problem is at least as severe in our own hearts. So that should give us hearts of compassion for our enemies, even as we wage wage war against the sin that they would like to thrust upon us. And finally, what a reason to bless the name of the Lord our God and to praise Him day after day. It's so easy to forget how loving and how patient and how merciful He has been to us, but we must never forget it. Who indeed is like Him? He pardons us, He heals us. He frees us from the sin that seeks to rule us. He restores us when we fall away from Him. And He brings us back into His presence to know the joy of His steadfast love. He could have shown His righteousness by casting us all away into hell forever. Instead, He does so by healing us, who indeed is like Him. Amen.